0: Our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that when implemented will improve our safety our environment, and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer, and we're going to have fun doing it. Okay, welcome
1: everybody. This is a new edition of the Mission Zero podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Peoples. I have with me today, my co-host, as always, Justin Overstreet. Welcome, Justin. Glad to be here. And a very special guest we have today astronaut, speaker, podcaster, photographer, filmmaker, and author, Terry Verts. Terry, thank you so much for coming on today for us. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's fun. It's really great to have you. Uh, I appreciate your time so much. Uh, generally with our guests, what we like to do is is kind of start out by giving them a little, uh, or them giving us a little bit of their, of their history, their career, what brought them to where they are today in the world and what you're doing right now. Can you give us a little history, maybe maybe the moment you decided you want to be an astronaut till all the way through the space station.
2: Sure. Um, when I was a kid, the first book I ever read was about Apollo. It was one of those kindergarten cardboard books and I was hooked, you know, I, I was like, man, that sounds like a lot of fun getting to go to the moon. So I, um, kind of spent my childhood fascinated about space. I had, uh, posters of, galaxies and spaceships and all kinds of stuff uh covering the walls of my boyhood room i didn't really know exactly how to make that happen and then when i was in high school a family friend told me to read the right stuff which i did it was an incredible book just the best book um the movie's pretty good too the movie has aged very well That's but it it showed me the path it is yeah chuck yeager and the original mercury astronauts okay Go ahead. So those those guys were fighter pilots and test pilots, so I kind of pursued that path. I went to the Air Force Academy, <clears throat> got a degree in math and also a minor in French, which is kind of a weird um background or weird, you know, combination. And then uh went to be a pilot in the Air Force flew F-16s for the better part of a decade, ended up at test pilot school, and in- and then I was picked by NASA, really actually pretty young. I was the youngest pilot they had um only spent about a year as a test pilot and spent 16 years at NASA uh, ended up flying on the space shuttle endeavor for the final space station assembly mission. And then about five years later, I went back up on a Russian Soyuz to fly on a long duration um, space station flight. And I ended up spending over seven months in space. Total Hmm. left NASA now about five years ago, and I'm interested in writing and filmmaking and that's kind of, one of my passions. And my other passion is business and entrepreneurship, and energy is kind of my favorite thing. Uh, It's what what makes the Earth go round. So I have been involved in the energy industry for the last few years. I've got a startup, a renewable diesel company, and also uh, I'm doing some part-time consulting for energy transition for some traditional oil and gas companies that are kind of branching out into the renewable universe.
1: Okay, great, great. Well, I guess you know, being in space gives you a few more hours every day somehow for you to, to be able to squeeze all of those things in. Well, uh, so how many languages do you speak?
2: Well, you know, I was Russian and French um, to varying levels. It, uh, French I do pretty good in. Russian's a little bit tougher, but I can I can understand a little bit. I can get along in Russian. And I, I lived in Germany for years, so I picked up a few words in German. I never had any lessons. And, uh, of course, I live here in Texas now, so I've learned some Spanish over the years, mm-hmm. uh, go eat at Mexican restaurants and so on. But <laughs> mostly you, um, just French and Russian.
3: <laughs> were you were you stationed over in Germany?
2: Yeah, I spent probably the best years of my life there, three and a half years based in Germany. Um A lot of that time was in Iraq, uh, but you know my actual address was in Germany. So my wife, uh, my wife is Air Force, and
3: uh, and she spent uh, I think two years at Ramstein, and she loved it over there. She said when she first got her uh, assignment, she was a Texas girl, so she was trying. She got it in San Antonio, and she's trying to stay here. So she's trying to trade with people, and they wouldn't trade. And finally, someone took her aside and said stop doing that. You'll regret it. And, and she would tell you today that uh, if she had gotten her trade, she would have certainly regretted
2: missing that. So they were uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Germany's Germany cool. Yeah. I love it.
1: So, uh, Terry, uh, we'll just jump right in to, uh, you know, start out with talking a little bit about space travel. Like I said, this is a health and safety issued podcast. What is, um, what is space travel like on your body? What are the risks there? I guess that, uh, you know, I guess also the speed of travel, but also the risk on the body of being at zero gravity for that for that long of a time. What what, what are what are the, the risks there?
2: So we're still learning. Um, the biggest risk is probably blowing up <laughs> during launch yeah. or landing. You know <laughs> uh, that you know that's a that's a hazard. It seems uh, like a big to, one. You know? Yeah, that's a hazard. Um, but then once you get into space, like you said, you're weightless, and so that. Entails its own issues. Uh, There's been a lot of studies on astronaut eyes because a few guys have had problems with their eyesight. Um, It changes blood flow and cardiovascular issues. It also puts a lot of pressure on your brain. And also you're breathing this really high carbon dioxide atmosphere. On Earth, we have trees and plants and they work really good for taking CO2 out of the air. Uh, In space, we don't have that. And the machines we use to do that instead are just not as good as trees and plants. So that is... um, there's kind of an unknown effect that that has, but by far the biggest problem is radiation uh, and the potential for getting cancer from that. And I could actually see, I remember my fifth night in space, I closed my eyes, I was going to bed and I saw this giant white flash and it was radiation hitting my, um, hitting my uh, face. And I actually, I remember going, my face is bleeding. So I don't know if you can, you can probably see that right now. Mm-hmm. This is my skin cancer treatment that I've I've been doing for the past week. <laughs> so, And it, I could literally it's just started bleeding and I was like, what's going Mm -hmm. on? And then I went back five years later. Yeah. Yeah, Five years later, I'm back and had some more, I've got a bunch of scars on my chest and stuff. So it's okay. You know, I, I get treated for it, but the radiation and cancer is definitely one of the risks. Um, it's the big risk for, especially if we're going to go to Mars or anywhere, deep space, when you're in low earth orbit, you have some protection from the earth's magnetic field. Uh, but when you go out in deep space, you don't have that. So going to the moon or Mars or others, the radiation environment's a lot worse. So that's one. that's one of the things that we really need to be aware of. Well, we're definitely going to get to
1: Mars. Uh, I, had, I met an astro, you're actually the second astronaut that I've met personally. Uh, one gentleman, uh, had told me he got all the time in space. He was now two
2: inches taller. Is that, is that a real <laughs> thing? Well, one, while you're in space, that's true. Um, you grow a few inches. Uh, I was finally six feet tall, but then as soon the doctors <laughs> told me as soon as as soon as I came back to Earth, you know a couple hours later, I was back down to 510. So, so is that because yeah. of
3: the, de- the decompressive nature of uh, weightlessness well, right, and all of that or
2: yeah, right now gravity's pushing us all down, but sure. if you like if you you could sit up straight so in space, it's like basically sitting up straight. You don't have gravity pushing down, you can just do that. As, my first also, flight I didn't notice on my second flight it was painful man my back hurt pretty bad for like two weeks I they had these this little thing that would stretch your body um, that was a big help but yeah I had a lot of back pain on that on that flight. I, I found
3: it real I, interesting you know do, going back and doing some research and and, uh, and listening to some other uh, interviews you'd given yeah, the discussion around bone density loss up
2: there and how, how you guys mm-hmm. solved that uh, that um, issue. Yeah, that, that's been something, you know, for years, um, bone density, it's, it's basically like getting osteoporosis because right now, even though we're all sitting there, we're still fighting, you know, we're fighting gravity. So our bones and muscles are working and in space that doesn't happen at all because you're weightless. So, um, they found, in fact, they found it was just a linear decrease in bone density, about one and a half percent a month. So in theory, if you were up there for a few years, you would turn into a jellyfish with no, with no bones. Right. They would just dissolve. Yeah. Yeah. NASA came up with this exercise protocol. um, That's really good. So I I took a vitamin D tablet every day because on earth you get that from sun In space. You don't get that. Um, So a vitamin D tablet every day and two and a half hours of exercise. And after 200 days, I lost 0.0% of my bone density. Oh, that's great. uh, Which shocked me. It shocked the doctors too. Normally astronauts lose a little bit, but I was really diligent. I did my exercise every day. You say two and a half Um, hours every day. Well, they, yeah, that includes like getting cleaned up time, but they, they block out, they block out two and a half hours out of your day to an hour for cardio, either a treadmill or bike, and then an hour and a half on the weightlifting machine. The weightlifting machine is what really did it. So I always tell, whenever I give a talk about this, I always tell, especially the women you know, grab a five pound dumbbell, grab a 10 pound dumbbell and just do something the the, it's the resistive weightlifting that keeps your bone uh, density strong and that could prevent osteoporosis. So sp- that's a disease that mostly women get. And so even a small amount of body weight exercise or 10 or five pound dumbbell exercise might really help out in the long run. So it's interesting you bring that up that it it affects
3: women, uh, you know, more drastically uh, do they see that same trend in women astronauts when they're up there? Do they see a, a greater decrease in bone density over time, or is it uh, basically the same?
2: That's a good question. I don't think so because the women astronauts are usually in their 30s or 40s sure. or 50s. They're not, you know, osteoporosis age. Um, and the women who fly in space are all exercising. You know, right. they even right. do weightlifting. So um, I have never heard that as being an issue. There are there are some issues where, you know. Male or female have different responses to the the thing, but I have not heard that particular one.
1: What is the um, you, you know you mentioned uh, vitamin supplement? What is uh, I guess the the food program? What is your nutrient program? What is it like the the entirety of it?
2: it it's it's pretty good. I, I when I was in space, I enjoyed the food. It was one of the highlights of my time up there. Um, I like variety. Uh, the American food was good. It's not we didn't have fish. I wanted more fish. There's very little of that. There were like bags of tuna and that, and shrimp cocktail. Those were the only really fish that we had. Um, the Russians had great fish. Um, that was one of the, one of the highlights of theirs. So you could, you could ask for different, there was a standard program of mostly American food, but you could ask for uh, food packets. So I actually ordered some Russian food cause I really liked their borscht and their, uh, potato mashed potatoes were really good. And, um, I wanted European, but they had run out of food, so I they gave me like some leftover old European food, but it was like duck confit, and mm. it was all this fancy French chef. Rich, yeah, <laughs> it was really good. It was all expired, but it tasted pretty good. So,
1: uh, what was you know? I, I guess a question I would want to ask when you when you return is there is there like a program or I guess. Um, you know, I I, I scuba dive, right? And there's obviously the issues there with the pressure on you and you have to, Uh you know, there's the precautions you have to take. I'm sure it's kind of a, not the same, but almost an opposite thing coming back. What do you have to do coming back? Is there a program you have to go through?
2: Yeah, so the space station is at sea level pressure. It's, I don't know, 14.2, 14.3 PSI or something like that. And standard sea level pressure, I think is 14.7. So it's pretty close. So actually coming back to Earth is not a problem unless... You have a leak in your spaceship. Uh, in that case, your your suit would fill up like the Stay puff Marshmallow Man, and um, you may and if you if you leaked a vacuum, come you you might end up getting the bends because the pressure in your suit you know you would have a pressure drop. Um, the big time that we face that is not coming back to Earth is actually going out and doing a spacewalk because the big bulky. Uh, I've got my my book right there, How to Astronaut. There's a picture mm-hmm. of me in a spacesuit there. That spacesuit right there, or there's, I got my little Omega watch, uh, astronaut <laughs> in the spacesuit, right? Yeah. That, that spacesuit is only about one third atmospheric pressure. So, mm-hmm. um, you actually have to take a couple hours. You breathe hundred percent oxygen to get the nitrogen out of your blood. Yes. Uh, and that, pre- yes. and they step the, they step down the pressure. There's different, there's different ways to do it. You can spend the night in the airlock at a reduced pressure, or you can just do it all at once, which is what I did. Um, But that step down from sea level pressure to one third pressure is important because you would get the bends, which is when this gas inside your body comes out and it hurts your bones and it can kill you. It can get in your brain or your lungs or whatever. It it can give you an aneurysm. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: One uh, quick question I wanted to ask, too. uh, You know, I looked at when you graduated. uh, You must have been around 18 or 19 years old when the Challenger explosion happened am i right about that
2: you are mm-hmm.
1: what, what is I, there, was, I was in yeah, elementary was, school and they, I, I remember it clearly i mean justin probably does as well i mean it was a you know a monumental mm-hmm. moment in u.s history i mean is there is there we haven't had anything like that since is there any chance if we fixed that problem of ever happening again i mean is there is there what are the risks of that anymore
2: well we had we had the space shuttle columbia blew mm-hmm. up in 2003 so yeah. we did have it again in fact yeah. I teach, I teach that class at Harvard Business School. It's called Why Organizations Fail, and we talk about Challenger and Columbia. Um, and I've written some other things about it. Essentially they were the same, they were the same exact organizational failure, which is really frustrating for me. Um, and you know, SpaceX has had some challenges. They've been great. They've launched crews into space. It's everybody loves SpaceX, but they've also had a few test capsules without people on board, blow up and crash. And. You never hear about those things. So the good news is space travel's hard. They have their failure. They fix it. They move on quickly, which is what you need to do. Um, But there's still risk there for sure. Anytime you're strapping yourself to a rocket going into space, there's risk. There's a space tourist company called Virgin Galactic, and they're they're just taking people up on a rocket plane and they come right back down a few minutes later. But that last launch that they had had some issues. They did not fly the trajectory they wanted to fly and That's why they haven't flown since then. They've been dealing with the fallout from that. So
3: uh, there's there's still risk. It's interesting that you bring up uh, you know Columbia and Challenger and the the fact that there were essentially the same failures creating that and the frustration you had around that. I think it's important for our listeners to hear, which are mainly you know not industries like NASA that that uh, an organization like NASA that we think of as being just unbelievably gifted at that kind of stuff can still have. an event that happened when I was in fourth grade and then another event that happened when I was in my adulthood, essentially be the same thing. And then you think about all of the launches that were in between that, then nothing happened. Uh, and this, this, uh, sense of maybe complacency or something that maybe we fixed the problem. It's not going to happen again. And that can, can affect any organization of any caliber, any size. I, I think that's important.
2: Uh, an important point you brought up. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I do consulting. Uh, I do speaking on this topic. The financial industry is, you know, perhaps the most prone to risk. Oil and gas industry. I, uh, my son was studying chemical engineering and he, he did the Texas, um, city e- explosion. Mm, yeah. and reading that, I thought I was reading the Challenger accident report. Um, the to say that nothing happened and then all of a sudden columbia happened that's not true as an air force pilot we always study safety and aircraft accidents Mm -hmm. airplanes never just crash there's always a chain of events we call it the safety chain so the key is to like you have to break one of those links so that it doesn't keep on until the accident happens right rockets nothing very rarely just suddenly explodes and kills people there's always warning signs the vehicle's almost always talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, the Columbia accident happened from foam hitting the wing of the space shuttle that popped a hole in it. And then it and then it um, it it melted when it came back to earth and hit that really hot re-entry temperatures. Um, they had had foam coming off the shuttle and hitting different parts and really serious damage. And they always said, well, it didn't kill them. It must be fine. Well, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> if, if, if the, if the vehicle's is talking dangerous. to you, and Challenger, they had the O-ring leaking hot gas mm-hmm. on several missions. It just didn't leak it towards the tank. And so if it goes out into space, nothing happens. But on Challenger, it went right towards the fuel tank. It was a blowtorch on rocket fuel, which eventually blew up. And so um, the when the vehicle talking to you, you got to listen. And that's, yep. the, that's the hard thing for managers to figure out. You know, if you dev- if you want to be safe, you would just never fly. Sure, that doesn't make sense. But you have to come up with that balance.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think that point is is equally uh, is equally important in that when I said you know you know all these launches where nothing happened to yeah. the, the the public watching, there's nothing happening. Right. Right. And so, how many times do companies see that too, where you're seeing all of these the the vehicles talking to you, so to speak. Your your organization's talking to you, yeah. and the outside outside of that group, maybe even inside the organization, they don't see any of that, uh, conversation between your vehicle and you and, and none of that gets communicated out and you ultimately end up with the, the same result. So I think it's a, a really interesting topic to, I mean, you could spend, you could spend hours just debating all of that, I think. So it's a, uh, it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty interesting to me for sure. Uh, a quick answer on this one—I I, I don't want to uh, spend a lot of time on it—but
1: it's something that interests me, uh, Terry. How big of a problem is space junk? Is it
2: really? Is it, is it a danger to people on Earth? Uh, people on Earth, not so much. Unless it like the, when the space station comes back, that's going to hit the ground for sure. A lot, at least a lot of it will. But the big problem with space junk is it makes it dangerous for stuff in space. And so I've actually had several. Guests on my podcast, Down to Earth with Terry Virts, who have talked about that very thing. Um, I think it's the biggest problem that we're not talking about today. It's one, it's one of the biggest. It's on the Mount Rushmore problems because the space junk that we're putting up in, in these large constellations, Starlink, OneWeb, uh, the Chinese have them. They're, they're launching tens of thousands of satellites at pretty high altitude, which means they're, they're never going to come back to Earth. There's, there's not enough atmospheric drag to slow them down and bring them back to Earth. And some of them, if they function properly, will fly themselves back and burn up. But a lot of them are not going to function properly. And so we're just making this these massive clouds of debris. Um, and space is big. There's lots of room, but it's not infinite. And there's been a couple of incidents where defunct dead satellites have run into other satellites and they create bigger debris. And th- there's, there's, a, there's a chance that's not zero for sure that we're just going to make this huge cloud of debris to... Make large parts of Earth orbit not usable because of all the mess we made. And the mess we're making there will be around forever. People in the year twenty five hundred are going to be on podcasts bad mouthing us because of how we made this mess. <laughs> That's not, you know, clean upable. These yeah, it sure doesn't help when uh,
3: when countries are are
2: blowing satellites and stuff up just to prove they can do it. Either. So when I was in space in two thousand seven, I had to maneuver the space station to avoid debris that our mm-hmm. Chinese friends made. In 2014, I had to avoid debris. I'm sorry. I was in space in 2015. The debris happened in 2007. So eight years later, I had to maneuver the ISS in 2015 because of this Chinese military test. Then in 2019, our Indian friends decided they needed to get into it, and they blew up a satellite a couple hundred miles up. And then just a few months ago, Russia did something that was, it it should have been a glaring red flag. They blew up a satellite at the same orbit as the space station. And our astronauts and their cosmonauts had to jump in a Soyuz and because they didn't know if we were going to hit the debris or not. Mm. And when you're going to have they call a what they call a conjunction, which means this piece of debris is going to come really close to the space station. A fancy way to, of saying a wreck. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. you don't know if you're going to have a wreck or not, but you have to get in your Soyuz and close mm-hmm. the hatch. The theory being if it rips through the space station. It would be such a disaster. At least you'll be in your capsule and be safe in there. Now, it could hit the capsule too. Correct. I mean, hopefully it won't. The capsule's smaller, but you know, it's zooming through space at five kilometers a second. You're going five kilometers a second in a different direction. Um, it's a mess. Pretty good closing speed. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah.
1: Wanna move on to Mars, Terry. Uh <clears throat> that's obviously a big on in the news and, and the general public is, is something that's captivated. Mm-hmm. Obviously Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX is on a mission to get there. Uh, mm-hmm. I've heard you speak quite a bit about this and the idea of, of uh, if traveling there, is it, if, is it, if it is impossible, uh, if uh terraforma is possible, what, what are your opinions? Are we, are we really going to get there? Are we really going to put people on the surface there? And is, is terraforma people actually settling there
2: possible? Yeah. Actually, so I have this new book, uh, How to Astronaut. There's a chapter in there about that. And I wrote about the technologies that I think we need. Um, The first most important technology is nuclear power, because nuclear power gives us megawatts. Solar power gives us kilowatts. And you need megawatts to drive an electric propulsion system. So instead of a normal rocket engine where you burn fuel, you, you electrify ions and you shoot them out the back. And that actually makes thrust and you can go a lot faster if you have engines like that. A lot of satellites in Earth orbit use really small versions of that. In order to send people, you need a massive nuclear engine. Once you get to the surface, you need nuclear power uh, because people just need electricity to run the fans, to run the atmosphere system, the water system, you know, people, the heaters, it's cold on Mars. So people need electricity. So nuclear power in space is number one. Number two, those engines help would help get us there and back quicker. You could go to Mars and back in a year if you had the right kind of electric propulsion. If you just have a normal chemical rocket, the kind that we use every day, um, it's a three year trip because it takes you so long to get there. Earth and Mars go around the sun and you got to wait for them to go around the sun again to line up to come back. And so the difference between three years and one year is huge. That's a lot of food and underwear and toilet paper you got to pack. Um, it's also a lot of radiation. Well, that, that seems to me to be the, the
1: problem yeah. I couldn't come together in my head
2: is how do you, if it's yeah. a three year journey, how do you solve the food problem? I, I don't understand how they would do that. Yeah. You, you have to pack a lot of food. Uh, one of the guys here, one of the Johnson space center, actual rocket scientists, Mo- most people here are not, they kind of have normal jobs, but this guy actually develops missions and he understands this stuff. This has been a few years since we talked, but he said that it would require between seven and nine SLS launches. SLS is this giant, massive NASA rocket that we've been developing since for 17 years now, uh, and it hasn't flown yet. (laughs) And we're going to potentially fly it like once a year. And he said it would take seven of these launches to build the massive three-year Mars ship to get there and back in a three-year trip. That's just not practical. Which is another reason why the one-year um, mission is is and and the dollars, you know, to send stuff to the space station, it's tens of thousands of dollars. Even on SpaceX, everybody says how cheap SpaceX is. They just raised their prices by fifty percent. Um, it's good. It's good to have a monopoly, by the way. Um, it, and so, it never hurt, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's not exactly a monopoly, but it's pretty close. And it's so close. It's tens of thou- uh, for. I've got my McDonald's Diet Coke here you know, this would be tens of thousands of dollars to launch the space station to launch it to the moon. It would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially to bring it back and to go to Mars. It's probably going to be a million dollars. If you go on Wikipedia and you divide the mission cost by how many kilograms we send to Mars, that's not a scientific way of doing it, but it's pretty close. It's going to be about a million dollars a kilogram to get something there and back. So the less food and stuff you have to pack, the more economically viable it is to go to Mars. Um, You asked about terraforming.
1: Yeah. yeah, Well, before that, let me ask you this. To get there in a year, how fast are we going?
2: I mean, how fast will the ship have to go? Well, to leave Earth's gravity, it's got to go 25,000 miles an hour with respect to Earth. But whenever you're talking about speeds in space, you have to ask with respect to what? With respect to the sun? With respect to Earth? Because Earth's going tens of thousands of miles an hour around the sun, the sun's going hundreds of thousands of miles an hour around the galaxy. So everything's moving relative to something else. But with respect to earth, you need to get going probably, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe, maybe not 50, probably 30 to 40,000 miles an hour. It's pretty fast. And
1: how pretty would that, fast. I mean, how would that be handled? How would the body handle that
2: though? I mean, is it just decompressing that like something inside the, inside the cockpit there or. Well, getting off of earth the shuttle and the Soyuz, the shuttle went to three Gs. I think the Soyuz goes up to about four Gs. So it's three or four times your body weight. So lay on your back and have a couple of your buddies lay on top of you. That's what it feels like. That's for eight eight minutes, eight and a half minutes just to get into Earth orbit. Um, to go to Mars, the acceleration wouldn't be that much. But it, you know, if you use a rocket, it would be one or two Gs of acceleration, which is a lot. If you use electric propulsion, it's a fraction of a G. You would barely feel it. The difference is the rocket, the chemical rocket burns for 8 minutes. The electric motor would run the entire time. It would run for 3 months, it would be accelerating you, pointing you towards Mars, and then halfway there you would spin around and it would decelerate you so you would don't go flying past. So the electric propulsion is really low force, but it's continuous acceleration and you end up going a lot faster. You know, imagine if you had a car floating, so there's no friction. Well, if you just push on it with your finger, it, you're not going to win any drag races. But if you pushed on it with your finger for a month, that thing would be going pretty fast mm-hmm. at the end of the month. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah,
3: and then once you're up to speed, you're you're going to be assimilated to that inside anyway. You're not yeah, yeah, to, yeah, you're floating. Yeah, you're just floating. So, and plus yeah. with the the expense going to Mars, you've got to factor in Matt Damon's expenses as well. <laughs> and, exactly. and all of that, right? Air, hair and makeup it, is, yeah. Is, you know,
2: as, as you got running a podcast, as you guys know, right. that's a big
3: guy, and yeah. he's probably he's probably got a, a massive salary. I mean, I just assume, but uh, <laughs> anyhow.
2: <laughs> so terraform Bigger than mine. Terra, is yeah,
3: it, is, is it possible
1: on Mars or anywhere that so, matter?
2: Yeah. So basically like making something like earth is the Latin term and it's possible, but it wouldn't last for one very simple reason. Mars doesn't have a magnetic field. I just did a series of podcasts with a guy named Jim Head from Brown university. He's really cool astronomy professor there. He's the best Um, Did worked with our Apollo astronauts back in the days, teaching kids at Brown. And we, we did a series, I think it was four episodes we started off at Mercury and went all the way out to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud, uh, all the different planets. And the the bottom line with Mars is there's no magnetic field. So even if we made an atmosphere there, um, the su- the solar wind would just strip it away. The reason why Mars used to have an atmosphere, it doesn't anymore because of it, there's no magnetic field. Um, unless you have a magnetic field to protect you from solar radiation, you will lose your atmosphere. The other problem is there's water on Mars and there's there's carbon dioxide. You can see the ice. If you've got a small telescope, if it's the Martian winter or summer, you can see the polar ice caps at the North pole and South pole. Um, so there is water there that you can see from your backyard, but it's frozen. It's like minus 150 degrees, or it's really cold in the Martian polar ice caps. And I think Elon Musk had his idea was, well, we could just set off nuclear bombs in the Martian polar ice caps. That would put up, that would heat up all this water and it would make an atmosphere. It would make an atmosphere for some amount of time, but eventually the solar wind would strip it away. So at the end of the day, you you can never terraform Mars for the long time, for the long term, unless you can start the core, the planet's core spinning. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that anytime soon. So the, the really, that's a really long answer. The bottom line is we got Earth and that's it. There is no planet B. Yeah. I actually just listened to a a interview that, that Bill Maher did
3: with Ben Shapiro uh, and and they were talking about going to Mars and he's, and Bill Maher's point was uh, you have to create everything on Mars to be sustainable and livable. Earth would have to get, he can't imagine a scenario where earth was so bad that that was the answer. Right. So uh, if earth
2: is so bad that Mars is the answer, we're in Yeah, (laughs) it's over. We're in bad shape. right? Um, yeah.
1: You kind of touched on it earlier. Uh, does the, the idea of militarizing space scare you? I mean, obviously, Justin mentioned uh, Space Force uh, is something that came along recently. The idea of a moon base. And, you know, in, yeah. the, in the past, I guess, in the, in the beginnings of space, it was almost like a, it was a competition, right? To, to, and it was also a, a, a sign of power like who got there first mm-hmm. and who was in charge and who was really the the big dog in the in the world right does it, now it's getting to the point where it seems like satellites are becoming weapons you've mentioned uh and something i had never heard the, the 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 russian explosion uh just a few months
2: ago mm-hmm. is, is space becoming militarized And if it is does it does that concern you space got militarized back in the 60s you know we've had a space force since the 1960s it was, used to be called Air Force Space Command. Now it's Space Force. It's the same people. They just got a different uniform. Um, and they also integrated a little bit of Navy and our, you know, some of the other services had their own little mini space forces. So there was some efficiency there. I, I actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post a few years ago advocating for that. And I was standing 10 feet in front of President Trump the day he announced that there was going to be a space. I didn't know it. I was there to talk about Our moon exploration program but i was right in front of him when he announced there was gonna be a space force so i have this connection with it the the reality is space is not air i've done them both and they're both very different it's not land it's not water um and it's not cyber and the way our military fights is multi-domain you know we don't just send the infantry in We send in multi-domain. We have air, land, sea power, and space power, and cyber power. So in my mind, we should also have a cyber force because each service has their own cyber commands. I I spent a little bit of time in Air Force Cyber Command. Um, Those, The kind of guys that grow up to be hackers are not the kind of guys that grow up to be fighter pilots. And they're not the kind of guys that grow up to be infantrymen. And they're not the kind of guys that grow up to be sailors. Right It's just a different type of person. So I think we should have a cyber force. I think we should have a space force. I don't think that we should be overtly, you know, putting weapons in space and that kind of thing. That the what we really need to focus on is preserving our assets because our assets in space allow us to fight the way we fight. This war in Russia, we Maxor is a private company that's been providing intelligence for the world. That convoy around Kiev should have been destroyed on day one. Unfortunately, the Ukrainians don't have the weapons to do that. We should have given them the weapons so that they could have destroyed that thing. Um, this this theater that the Russians just bombed, that they had the word Diety, which means children in Russian, um, you could see that from space. Um, Starlinks, so a friend of mine just bought a Starlink terminal and shipped it over and it's providing intelligence to uh, Ukrainian forces. Um, that comes from space, right? Lots and lots of our warfading capability comes from space and other nations are much less dependent on space. So there's this concept of asymmetric warfare where a, a less sophisticated company country could just poke us in the eye and take out our space assets. There's some speculation about why did Putin do that military test a few months ago? Um, I don't know that that's why he was doing it, but um, it would be a much l- lower cost to a country like Russia than it would be to a country like us to just Start blowing up satellites in in Earth orbit, so protecting our assets I think is maybe one of our top priorities. I I'm not in space force, so I can't say this is just as a civilian. It's talking off the top of my head.
3: I I think it's interesting you bring up the uh, the cost to Putin and you know countries like that to make a statement or whatever uh, it is much less than the cost of the U S and it's the same when you discuss environmental impacts and those types of things. And we do everything we can over here to, to, you know, always be greener and, and you know make the right decisions around the planet. And, and it's, you you can only do so much as a country. And I think that the, that's a great point to bring up that the, uh, the impact to us is much greater than the impact to, a uh, a China or a Russia because they don't they, they, not that they don't care, but they just seemingly don't care. Right. They just like, we're going to do this. And it's yeah. just the way that we're going to do it. And, and I, uh, to your point, like when, uh, the, the theater, uh, that they bombed yesterday and that was horrific to, to, mm-hmm. you know, see and, and all of that. And, and, uh, and you're just like, okay, well, this is a a different kind of, of warfare that then we haven't seen this, uh, since really world war two, uh, type yeah. of, uh,
2: warfare. And it's, it's really, really sad to see. Unfortunately, we saw it five years ago when Russia went in and annihilated Syria um, Mm -hmm. to to prop up the dictator uh, Assad. And we saw it in Chechnya and Georgia. And they've done this several times. When you talk about asymmetric warfare, um, we've seen it in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. a, 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 A caveman can come out, build an IED and, you know, take out American forces and it costs them very little and it costs us a lot. Um, I, in Iraq, you know, we would be bombing $10,000 trucks with million dollar bombs. And so there's, yeah, there, I think the, the there's point a lot I mean, of asymmetry. Yeah,
3: absolutely. The, the point I was making is, you know, we, we have a, we tend to make decisions based on wanting to appear a certain way on the world stage. And it yeah. doesn't seem as important to, uh, to, to those other countries. That's, that was the point I was making.
2: R- Russia is not worried about the world, world not stage because well, they not have their Russia own Russia. propaganda and Correct. people have been, many of them have been brainwashed. It's, it's really heartbreaking talking to really good Russian friends and, and, and some of them have just been brainwashed and they believe, yeah. they believe the propaganda and it's hurting them it's killing their own soldiers and it's destroy. Their lives are going to be miserable for many years to come because of one man's ego. Um, yeah. And propaganda is not just limited to Russia. You know, we have plenty of disinformation here too. It's, I think of all the problems we face, I think that's actually the biggest one is just having people think clear-minded and about things and not, not be blinded by ideology or propaganda or whatever you want to call it. Provocateurs. Yep. So, uh yeah.
1: <laughs> Moving along here, uh, you're doing a lot of media. You've got your podcast, you've got your uh, your books, your uh, you even have a photography uh, book as well that you that you did while you were in space. And what you're doing, you know, is inspiring young people. You're teaching young people. You're bringing this to them in a ways that we couldn't see it as young children, right, on the internet and on phones and such great pictures. So in the spirit of that, I asked uh, online for questions uh, and questions uh, mostly for children, uh, some from adults that just wanted to ask questions as well. Uh, and I'll start that off because this is some of these questions are uh, are certainly going to be questions that adults would want to know the answer to as well. Right. And so I'll start it off. So the uh, first question is from uh, Sherino Mariana. She's eight years old. She wants to know,
2: what are you doing while you're in space? Well, the fun thing about being in space is that every day it's something different. Uh, You don't do the same thing ever. Some days you're doing experiments. Some days, every day you have to exercise. Uh, Some days you're doing interviews. Some days there's cargo ships that come up and you have to unpack them and you have to reload them when they go back to Earth. Um, Some days you do spacewalks. So every day there was something different, which I really enjoy.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, Second question is from uh, Charlie Townsend. She's 10 years old. She wants to know, what does it feel like to walk on the moon slash in space? And I know you didn't walk on
2: the moon, but you may have an answer for that though. We have this airplane, we call it the vomit comet. It's like an airliner and it goes up and it pushes over. And so you can get weightless, or if the pilot pushes over, not quite as hard, just a little bit less, you can actually feel what it's like on the moon. So we would do a bunch of weightless parabolas, we call them, and then they would do one for Mars and one for the moon. And that was always really fun. But it feels like you're falling. And the reason it feels like you're falling is because that's what's happening. You're falling. Um, like I, I talked about before, it, it, you're just falling towards Earth. There's still gravity. You're, there really is not zero gravity anywhere. Uh, you're just moving so far ahead as you fall. Every second you move five miles forward, and you fall and you move five miles forward. And so, Um, that falling and moving makes an orbit. If you're at the exact right speed, it makes uh, the shape of an orbit, which is the same shape as earth. So it feels like you're falling is what that feels like.
3: Yeah. I found it interesting. Uh, you described it as, uh, having to consciously keep from like waving your arms around and and just in your mind say, okay, you're, you're falling, but you're not falling. You're fine. Mm -hmm. It's a, that's an interesting. I, like trying to even process what that
2: would feel like over
3: yeah. an extended duration was kind of, uh, right. I, I still am not
2: quite there, but it's pretty interesting. That It's interesting. I don't know why the humans, What? why do we have that instinct? To, well, we think to, we can yeah. fly, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's some type of we're trying to be birds. Maybe so. Who knows? That's so man. interesting. It is an interesting response to a fall, though, for sure. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You should do this or something to protect yeah. the fall, but that's not what we do. Still the cuss words, though, but
3: definitely not trying to flap the arms
1: (laughs) so next question from uh spencer townsend she's seven years old she wants to know does it feel like the scariest roller coaster ever when you take off
2: (laughs) it was even more than that you can't even imagine it's the scariest roller coaster inside of the craziest car driver that's ever driven down the highway um, inside of the craziest pilot flying through a thunderstorm,
3: <laughs> and worse um,
2: <laughs> the sa- The sound is so loud, the rocket engines are so loud. You're smashed back because there's so many g forces from the rocket. Uh, on the shuttle, there was a lot of vibration, so it's like somebody grabbing you and shaking you. Um, it's really cool, but it's a really crazy l- ride into space. And-, and while
3: all that's going on, are there um are there people from mission control in your earphone telling you all kinds of stuff yeah. or is it
2: pretty quiet oh, yeah. while you're ascending? No, no, no. I mean, you, well, first of all, you try to minimize calm because mm-hmm. whenever somebody's talking, everybody else has to shut up. And so one of the first things you learn as a pilot, you don't say something unless it's useful. Cause every mm-hmm. time you're talking, no one, someone else can't talk. Uh, so that's not too much, but there is some calm back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just not you go ahead and ask yours.
3: Yep. So my question is from uh, Myers, who's 15 years old. He says, uh, is the Air Force the best path or at least a very good path towards becoming an astronaut? And is there a certain focus that they should have in college for a major that would make it helpful to, to becoming an astronaut?
2: Great question. I'm a little bit biased. I, I think the Air Force is the best. There's a lot of ways. The other military services, um, there's civilian scientists and engineers and doctors, Um Having a technical degree like a math or science or engineering degree is, is necessary. Um, that's one of the requirements for NASA. So you have to go to college. You have to get that degree. But you need a lot more than that. There's thousands or tens of thousands of applications they get. So you want to do well. You have to be at the top of your game in whatever career you're in. Um, and probably having advanced education. So, if you want to be an astronaut, you're going to be learning for the rest of your life. I'm still learning. I'm, re- I'm reading a book about how to write a screenplay right now. Um, I'm learning all kinds of stuff about the energy industry. Um, so, you just have to have that curiosity for learning for life is the most important thing. Great. Great.
1: All right. Uh, next question is from Bailey Hieronymus. Uh, surprising question here for a 10 year old, but uh, her question is after Mars. What is the next goal for space exploration?
2: Which I thought was a wild question
1: from a ten-year-old, but
2: yeah, <laughs> she needs to listen to my podcast uh, with Jim Head. I just, I just had a whole discussion about outer planets, and I've actually had a couple of other astronomers on talking about the outer planets. Those moons out there around Jupiter and Saturn and the outer, the big giants, the big four planets are so cool. There's some really neat places out there. Titan is this world with this really thick atmosphere. Uh, there's liquid oceans there. There's lakes of uh, methane, I think. There's just crazy stuff on Titan. Um, Europa is uh, one of the two places that might have light. There's a liquid ocean on Europa. It's covered with an ice uh, covering. So that would be really cool to go to. It's an ice moon. Um, Enceladus is another moon of, of Saturn that would be pretty cool. So... All of those places would, would be pretty awesome. EO is the one of the moons of Jupiter. You can see it with binoculars if you got binoculars. And um, it's really volcanic. Uh, when Voyager flew by it back in 40 years ago now, over 40 years ago, I remember seeing pictures of volcanoes erupting on EO, which is just amazing. The reason is it's really close to Jupiter. So Jupiter's gravity like squashes the planet, which keeps it really hot and it launches. But there are some ice volcanoes on some of those moons that actually shoot up water because there's so much water there. There's literally volcanoes of ice erupting. It's just <laughs> really cool. There, there's some neat places to go visit. All right.
1: Uh, great answer. Uh, Hayden De La Garza, he's 14. He also knows the food good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the food is pretty good. Like really? I said, I we got pretty good food lab here at the Johnson Space Center. They did a good job. Um, I enjoyed eating for set for 200 days. So that, that was, it was good food.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, Zach Kahn, he's a student at Georgia tech. So, uh, his question obviously going to be a little bit more, uh, higher end on the questions, despite the rigorous <laughs> training, did anything surprise you in your, in your trip into space?
2: I was surprised at how beautiful the planet was. Um, It was just so awesome. I couldn't take my eye off of it, but I was flying the shuttle. So I'm like, oh my God, I just want to look out the window, but I gotta I've got to fly Endeavor, you know? So it it was really distracting at times. And I had my my whole seven months in space were I'm seeing the most amazing, I'm seeing creation from God's point of view, and then I have to get back to work to work on the toilet or plug in the cable or whatever, you know. So it's it's really a really wild, I call it juxtaposition of sublime and mundane where you go from this is incredible to you're doing basic mechanic work. And I guess that probably leads to a good one here. Uh, Micah Koshi he wants to know, what was
1: your most memorable moment in space? Can you hear me? Oh.
2: I can. Yeah, I'm oh, thinking. Oh, oh. I, there, there was a... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, there, I'm pro- I was on a spacewalk one time <laughs> plugging in cables. Literally, I, I routed the, the power and data cables that SpaceX uses when it docks. Um, and I, I had a few seconds and I stopped and I kind of rotated myself around and I could see this sunrise. I could see that happening Yeah, from one side of the earth to the other. And it was like, I was hearing from God, like I was h- seeing creation, something that humans <laughs> weren't meant to see. Um, and then I had to get back to work cause I had to plug in the next cable. So it was, it was, it was in a very memorable moment.
1: Okay. Uh, final question here. Uh, this is, uh, oh, no, actually two more. Uh, one more from Zach. He would want to know if you could solve one problem with space travel, what would it be?
2: Electric propulsion.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. I figured that was going to be the answer.
2: Help us. <laughs> That's how you get around the solar system.
1: OK, OK. Uh, and actually, his father is, is my mentor, uh, Bush and oh. he, has, he has a question as well. He's here in Houston. Uh, I hope to introduce you to him someday. He owns uh, Alchemy Industrial. uh, Oh,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. And so uh, he would like to know, what do you think of the private space, the private industry in space, the private space industry, I guess, uh, and and how uh, how they might work with with government programs?
2: Well, uh, back in 2005, our then administrator, Mike Griffin, started a program, to, it was called COTS commercial off the shelf, I think, but it was a way to try and get a little bit of government money into some private companies to do uh, cargo delivery to the space station. It was really just a way to get money into these private companies that were trying to do things. And he actually saved a company from bankruptcy. They were literally like one bad, one failure away from completely going under that company was SpaceX. Um, and then a few years later, they were delivering cargo to the space station. We also started a big government rocket program called SLS that same year, and it hasn't flown yet. And so, and it's billions of dollars a year that we've been spending ever since then. So you can see what private industry's done, and you can see what government's done. Um, the private industry generally does better than the government at, at things like at things like innovation and manufacturing and that kind of thing. So I think it's really good. The public private partnership is a key to what NASA is doing and what we want to do in the future. The uh, uh, There's a lot of different aspects of private spaceflight. I mean, there's launch, which is SpaceX, maybe Blue Origin in the future. Blue Origin has been really slow. I, that's Jeff Bezos's company. I think that when they catch up, I think they're going to be this big dog, but they have not really launched much at all. They've been very slow. Uh, SpaceX has been way out in front of everybody else. And the things that these companies are doing – are the envy of the world. The Russian space agency does not have any of that. Their their space program is completely destroyed now. Thanks to this war in Ukraine, all the commercial customers they had have pulled off the Soyuz, they're going to move to SpaceX or European Ariane rockets or other rockets. They have just destroyed their company. So the private guys give us a lot of innovation. Um, They, I think, are going to enable future exploration like back to the moon. You know, these things with the tour, the billionaires going up and stuff, it doesn't excite me that much. It was cool to see Captain Kirk go up, you know, watching yeah, him. That was, cool. uh, that was very, I had a big smile on my face. I was really happy um, for William Shatner. But if a hedge fund manager gets to take his kid into space, that's fine. But that money that he's spending is providing the middle class salaries for all the engineers that build the rocket. And blue origin doesn't just want to send tourists into space. They actually want to send, you know, have big, much bigger rockets that are going to have much serious, much more serious payloads and that kind of thing. So the, the, the billionaires in space actually help finance the other more important things that we're trying to do in space. Yeah. And we've
3: actually, um, on this, uh, on this podcast, we've had another person on here that had ties to the space station, uh, Kent Harrington, who, uh, was with a company called Ty Novix, which, uh, it works with NASA. They provide the HoloLens, uh, units and all the procedural stuff that, uh, hmm. that you guys used in the the space station. So he, uh, he and I are, are friends and, and we had him on the podcast. So it's kind of interesting. We've had cool. a couple of connections to the space station now. Mm-hmm. Right. And this,
1: cool. is, this is the final question, uh, Terry, and this comes from, uh, Jeff peoples. <laughs> <All right. laughs> right. I heard, right. heard of him. Here it goes.
2: Are aliens real? Do we have aliens? (laughs) You got to read my book. I got a chapter about that. Well, I have an astronaut. So I have a chapter about that. So here's the deal. I never saw any, but I've had a couple of alien guys on my podcast. Those are by far the most popular podcasts I've done. Um, You'd think there's so many planets out there. You'd think there are aliens. I mean, there's billions of planets. But then again, I think life is so complicated. I don't think it would just start on its own. I think it needs somebody to get things going. And I say that from a scientific point of view, not a religious point of view. Um, It's just a human eyeball is infinitely more complicated than my Omega watch, right? And so, A, you think somebody would have to get it started. B, there's a lot of planets, so you think they're out there. But C, man, those planets are really, 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 really far away. So even if they're out there, it's going to be tough to hear from them. But then again, you see these, I had Chris Mellon, the de- former undersecretary of defense who got these videos released mm-hmm. of what the Navy guys have been seeing. I don't know what those things are. And if, yeah. from what I've heard, I never saw them firsthand, but it sounds like they're doing things that defy physics. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know what those things were.
3: Well, what about that, that uh, you covered that one thing up when you were on your spacewalk?
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. You saw the video. Yeah. <laughs> that cracks me up. <laughs> like there, there's a YouTube video of and there yeah. Terry Verts is yeah. is blocking the view of the because obviously there's only one camera on the space that's, that's right that's right it's the only the one that you covered up well done even even though there's two on my helmet right that's right and then there's a hundred <laughs> other ones that are looking but there was like some glint of something right as my hand moved in front of it and right and and yeah. you're so aware of that yeah in everything you're doing in a spacewalk you went oh, oh wait let me get that and I knew. I and I went okay the line of sight from that thing to this camera up there right. is right there it's not well, there and it's not in front of my face it's over here I you, I you are exactly a fighter it. you're a fighter pilot so you yeah. are good at that kind of stuff so ninja ninja skills that's right
1: <laughs> wow well yeah. uh, you know I was going to ask you about that one singular event and uh you know I guess people, the layman person looking at that video, they're seeing what's on screen out of off the off the actual plane itself, right? That's the radar they're seeing. You've read radars like that before. You saw that is. I mean, was anything about that explainable to you? And I guess the physics as we know it. Which event are you talking about? Uh, the
2: the the ones that was just released a couple of months ago. Uh, oh, the Navy pilot videos, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a radar. That was an infrared camera. Mm-hmm. And we had the same infrared camera on the F sixteen. It lets you see at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a targeting pod that was just tracking this thing. It it looks like a they call it a tic tac. It's kind of shaped like a cylinder. Um, and if you listen to their eyewitness testimony and the guys that are testi- testifying. Our fighter pilots, when they wake up in the morning, their goal for the day is to not see an alien. Like they, these are not. Right. Yeah. In the, <laughs> that's the that's furthest from their mind. They're not in the UFO club. Yeah. Right. And if you report it. You're the UFO guy and, and there's been Air Force. I know Air Force guys have seen these, too, but they don't want to report them because the culture in the Air Force is not conducive to being the UFO guy. Right. So uh, you'll, you'll get a pretty fancy call sign. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what you want to do. And yeah, so. Correct. The, the good news is there are there's data. There's an infrared tracking camera. There are radar tracks of these things. i the, you know the DoD may have more. I don't know what the DoD has. I didn't ever. I was never a part of this program, but um, I would love to see that data. And mm. people who have seen it and have talked about it have said this thing went from the water to space and really fast. And so, who knows what that was. Uh, Chris's theory was it was some type, there's some type of drones kind of monitoring us, but I I don't know if that's real or not. I have, I have no idea. All I know is that I saw the videos. I heard the interviews, the people sound credible, tracking data sounds credible. Um, and, and people, and it's not, there's not a stigma anymore. They don't call them UFOs. They're UAPs. Um, they're trying to destigmatize. you know, let's, let's actually look at it. I had one guy on my podcast and it was going really well. It was interesting. And then he started talking about smoking mushrooms and when he was smoking mushroom. And I'm like, dude, we got to cut you. YouTube's not going to let me put that on there. So right. we had to cut that part out. And I'm like, all right. then." The, yes, the I, my in, my immediate instinct is to go. The And scientists say this to astronomers say this. The first instinct is it's not aliens. Whatever it is you're seeing, if you're seeing some chemical trace in an atmosphere, if you got a radio signal coming in. If you got a video of a thing, your first instinct needs to be it's not aliens. Carl Sagan said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, you know, to prove this is aliens would require a lot of proof before people are going to believe it. But there's some level of like, I don't know what that is. It doesn't really make sense um, from what I've seen. I guess my question.
1: Go ahead, Justin. Go ahead.
3: I was going to say it's getting so much traction now because there are credible people saying that like a fighter pilot is saying that it's not. Uh, Some guy in in Georgia, sorry, uh, (laughs) uh, that's saying it. it's a a fighter pilot and you're like, well, to your point, these guys, number one, their culture internally is you don't want to make a mistake and you don't want to be that guy.
2: You don't want to be that guy. No. Mm -hmm.
3: And then beyond that, uh, they don't wake up looking for those things. So uh, I think that's why it's getting as much traction as it is.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Although... (laughs) Based on events, you know, I used to kind of make fun of our former president, but now stuff's going on on Earth. Like if I was an alien, I think I might just keep on going by and look at <laughs> look for another look for another planet somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's well, some, well tear, who knows? Who knows? Uh, t- you know, Bob. Uh,
1: looking at the life you've lived, it's a, it's an enviable life for most men. It's almost like a fairy tale. And, and look, you, you know, you, you worked yourself into that and you've, you've, you've done the things you wanted to do and you've got an, a, almost seems like an almost impossible amount of things going on right now. And, and some of the things that I, you know, obviously we're trying to do here um, you know, is a, you know, media stuff. And, and I appreciate the fact that you're, you became an ambassador uh, for the space exploration programs and things like that. And you're inspiring young people. What uh, what does your future look like besides the things you got going on currently? I know Justin was very interested in your renewable energy, which obviously is an interest to our podcast.
2: Can you talk a, right. little, a little bit about that and maybe anything else you got going on in the future? In my perfect world, I would get, you know, a bit, my business started, grow that to be successful um, and, and use that to make movies. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I had a chance to direct my first film a couple years ago you know, I've written a few things. I've, I've actually have a screenplay that we're shopping right now. So I kind of have right brain, right brain and left brain desires, but getting the business going would be great. A cause it would support other things and B uh, because the, we need energy and it's, <laughs> and this is like, it just feels like now's the time for what we're trying to do. So, um, yeah. So
3: so speaking on that, uh, and, and you know specifically uh Endeavor Renewables, um first of all, I'm pretty sure I know how you came up with the name of it. Endeavor uh, <laughs> right, never uh, with but, a U. Yeah, well There you go. <laughs> it, it, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um but uh but anyhow, it, it I read through some of the things on it and, and it's really uh you know pretty interesting the uh, the concept of, of renewable diesel, especially uh given you know, fuel prices and things, what they are. And and if you could just kind of go through that and kind of, what is it about that that uh, was interesting enough to you to say, you know what, I'm going to get in the business of that.
2: Yeah. Well, what we're doing is using cellulosic feedstocks. So plant matter, you know, crops, you can use wood also. We're using that waste to make, um, to make diesel. Uh, it's the same process that Hitler used in World War II when we bombed his fuel supplies. He used biomass to make diesel because he needed diesel for his army. Um, it's our process is a lot better nowadays, but uh, it's a, it's a really interesting business. We think eventually we're going to get it to where it doesn't need subsidies. Right now, the government is providing good subsidies. If they weren't, we wouldn't be doing it. So it's a sometimes the government it's a public private partnership. They can be used to kind of you know, spark things along. Um, We make some interesting byproducts too a biochar. That's a really interesting fertilizer. uh, Some water uh, co-products that are the water is really good for uh, agriculture purposes. And also maybe we think um, as a concrete plasticizer. So this this uh, they call it circular economy. But there's a lot of there's a lot of um, multiple uses for this one technology. But at the end of the day, I, I would love to become, you know, a, a significant player in the renewable diesel universe. Yeah, it, it's
3: very interesting, and and uh I, and I did not realize that the technology had been around since World War II. And I started reading it, yeah. and and, uh, and and I would hope that the technology has improved since then. But <laughs> uh, it, it it just when I when I was reading through, just kind of preparing for you know, getting to interview you and those types of things, and I saw that I was like. Man, that, that really kind of lines up well with, uh, you know, some of the sustainability goals that companies are uh, are, are moving towards. And uh, my question is, is it something that uh, the renewable diesel side of it, is it something that there are has been around and people have been trying to to monetize that? Or is that relatively new space uh, that you guys are, are tapping into?
2: Well, renewable diesel is huge right now. There's billions of dollars going into renewable diesel plant that's called biodiesel. They use what's called fat oil and grease, you know, or soybean oil. Um, it's okay. There's, it's not a great carbon. It, it's better carbon intensity than normal f- crude oil, but it's not as good as ours by a long shot. It doesn't have co-products that are interesting. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of those products and they're moving their diesel out West because the California and other states have really interesting subsidies um so we're we're try we're going to focus on the midwest and focus in this part of the country but you know the electrification is great And the the reality is we're going to need diesel for a long time 18 wheelers and and trains use diesel fuel it's a fuel that's just going to be required for a long time and we can make it essentially carbon neutral so and it's american made you know we're not depending on russian or venezuelan or iranian oil we're it's american made products Interesting, um, you it, chose those countries. Anything current that caused that? Yeah. So um, yeah. yeah. So, but you know, here, there's a lot of misinformation. I actually just I recorded a, a monologue for my podcast today about energy prices, and there's a lot of emotional. You know, oil companies are screwing us. Well, no, it's a global commodity, you know, or this is all Biden's fault. Well, key, we should have built Keystone, but the reality is that wouldn't have change things hardly at all. And so there's a lot of emotion and ideology and we need just actual what's happening. Um, so I, I've been
3: in, uh, in oil and gas my entire life. I was born and raised in Midland, Texas. So that's there, all you get you to go. do. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, we've been an easy villain my entire life and, and yeah. it's, it's, it's an easy, easy, uh, we're, we're an easy target, but at the same time, I, I think people don't quite understand that. Oil uh, and gas aren't just gasoline that powers your car. It's mm-hmm. literally almost every single thing that you touch, and yeah. uh, to to do away with it, it's just not a. It's just not exactly. <laughs> it's just not something that you can do. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I always uh, find it interesting, you know, when they talk about you know zero emissions. I, I remember listening to Elon Musk talk about it, and and uh, he said well, it depends on where you count the emissions. If you count the emissions at the source, then maybe those are zero, but to get the hydrogen or whatever you're using as, as fuel to the point where it's usable to consume, there's a, a tremendous amount of emissions associated yeah. with that. And it's a, uh, it, it to me is a you know pretty interesting, uh, concept. And I do think that there are, are things that we need to be doing and, and looking at ways to innovate and, and all of that. It just, uh, I just wish it wasn't all on the U.S. to figure it out, and I, it feels like it, it is. But it's great to see that you know there uh, are um, companies out there like Endeavor that are looking at ways to to make it s- still a, a fuel product that can run the the equipment that's in place, but is a, a sustainable and re- a renewable source. And and I wonder you'd mentioned uh, on one of the other interviews that I watched that when you were in space, looking down on earth, you realize just how connected everything is. It's mm-hmm. just earth. Right. And, and we have, you know, we, we sit here in Texas and we have, you know, we think about it when I think about earth, I think about it in terms of a map, but you've seen earth and, and, uh, and does that help you? Do you think in your having seen that perspective, does that help you sort of guide those, uh, those avenues of thought around, you know, building a business for that type of thing?
2: I mean I, I hope so. You looking back at Earth there's you know there's only one there's no planet right. B. I Um I definitely had that realization. Uh I also saw w- one of my most profound things was seeing city lights at night and that you see people when you see city lights at night. You don't see people during the day. And it the thing the thought that I had that I'd never heard anybody say before but what I was looking at was wealth not population. And mm-hmm. so you fly over places like Africa, there's no lights on um, and, and it's dirt poor. You go over Western Europe or the East coast of America, there's lots of lights on lots of wealth and, and those places need energy. They need a lot of things. They need political stability above all else. They need a malaria vaccine in Africa, you know, but they also need energy and it's mm-hmm. energy that allows a lot of those other things to happen. So that, the you know, that one of the best ways to help life on earth, the quality of life that people live is to provide them, with energy, the the number one thing is to give them political stability. Mm-hmm. Once they have that, a, a functioning democracy or some form of it, um, then all the other things can come from it. And until you have that, it's really hard to get the other things to come. It's hard to get Ukrainians fired up about climate change right now.
3: Yeah, you would think so. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But um, uh, you know that's the number one issue, though.
2: Yeah, that's the foundation of what's going on. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> the the other thing, I and my podcast this morning that I just recorded and I've got an op-ed out that hopefully will get published in the next few days about energy. And so we need to be science-based. We can't spend a lot of money on energy. That's not really helping us out. Like nuclear power is a great source of emission free energy that we're just for emotional reasons, we haven't pursued it. Um, but we also have to think of our security. And in the 20th century, we had the biggest wealth transfer in human history, from developed nations to the Middle East, and for the last thirty years, we've been paying American soldiers combat pay because of that. Right, like that was a disaster. The amount of dependency we had on countries that don't really like us—that mm-hmm. was not a—that didn't go well. And now we're moving into electrification, and um, America stopped making solar panels about a decade ago. China makes them all. Mm-hmm. Um, most windmill components are somehow made in China. Most of the rare earths and minerals that you need for batteries and battery components are made in China. So we're about to have the the second largest wealth transfer in human history to support the Chinese Communist Party. And that's not going to work out well for us in the long run either. So we need to have a sane policy. Electrification is great. Let's make it in America or Mexico Mm -hmm. or Japan or Korea or even Vietnam. I mean, somewhere. Somewhere but, you know, friendly, anyway. Somewhere, right. yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, and I find it interesting too. You mentioned some of the byproducts when you're uh, working through the uh, the renewable diesel, and uh-huh. that uh-huh. one of the byproducts was water that helped with the you know growing of plants, and then plants are used to create the sustainable, uh, you know, the, the diesel. And so, right. is that is that cyclical nature <laughs> something that's you
2: guys are exploring? Is sort oh, of oh, a hundred percent, absolutely. Yep the biochar is an incredible fertilizer. University of Tennessee has done a lot of tests on our biochar and there's these little plants and these giant plants. And, you know, the, basically what we're doing, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're making crude oil. We're just doing it at 1100 degrees Celsius in a couple minutes. What takes nature millions of years. It's, um, you know, we're, we're taking plants that use, we're taking energy from the sun, right? Plant. That's how plants make this chemistry. So the energy ultimately comes from the sun and when we run it through our pyrolysis machine um we're capital what we're really doing is harnessing that energy from the sun that went into the plant when you pump a barrel of crude oil that's exactly what happened that's only the earth took millions of years to do it we're just expediting that process and down to a few minutes um but at the end of the day it's the energy really comes from the sun and photosynthesis right and that's cool well, Terry, uh,
1: and I know I know you're a little bit, you know, got a lot of things going on and, you know, you know, just kind of uh, slow, you know, close things up here. You know, you live a life that's pretty enviable and I know you're incredibly busy. So, again, thank you for giving us uh, your time, your knowledge, uh, uh, everything that, you know, all the information that you were able to share with us today was, was amazing. What, uh, where can our listeners go to learn more about the things you're doing?
2: I have a website, uh, Terryverse.com. If they want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Astro Terry, T E R R Y. And on Instagram, Astro underscore Terry. Uh, there, the Russians have hacked me several times. There's, <laughs> there's accounts like mine. So make sure you're on the verified, make sure it's my account. They did it during the last election. to promote a bunch of nonsense and they just recently hacked me again a couple weeks ago. So, um, make sure they go to the right Astro Terry. Um, and then, uh, like I said, I got a couple books out. How to Astronaut. Um, the documentary I made is called One More Orbit. So I've I've made a few projects. So you can find those on my website. And what was your podcast name again? The podcast. That's right, Down to Earth with Terry Virts. Down to Earth, Terry Virts. And that's been a lot of fun. I've been basically I've been doing once a week for almost a year now. Have we talk about aliens? We talk about space. Um, we talk about politics. We talk about filmmaking. I've had some Academy Award winners on. Um, it's a totally random, my brain is very random and ADD. So it's, it follows my brain's ADD pattern. Uh, but it's been fun. Had Washington post bestseller on who wrote the book about called the Afghanistan papers, had a Navy seal on, um, just all different kinds of people. Well, we, awesome. we
1: appreciate you. We really appreciate you doing this moving up. Uh, you moved up a little bit from Joe Rogan to our show. So good <laughs> exactly, for you. yeah, good for you, but, uh, well, thank you very much, sir, and uh, good luck in everything that you do, and, and we look forward to keeping up with you and maybe doing this again one, uh, uh, you know, maybe in the near future one day.
2: Yeah, thank you, guys. This is great. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Terry. Guns up.
3: Guns up. Yeah, exactly,
0: man. <laughs> thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.